Welcome back, everyone, to the Measured by Success Physio podcast. I'm your host, Greg Hall, and I'm joined as usual by David McRae. This week, our guest is Dr. Tim Gabbett, who has joined us from Brisbane, Australia. Dr. Gabbett is an applied sports scientist with over 25 years experience working in high performance environments, as well as being a prominent researcher in the areas of load, physical demands, injury prevention, and skill acquisition. Make sure to visit his website, gabbettperformance.com.au, for more information on Tim, his online courses, and consultancy services. As always, please go and subscribe to our podcast, leave us a five-star rating if possible, and share it with as many people as you can. Go and follow at Metrics Physio on social media, and you can visit our website too at www.metricsphysio.com. Thanks again to our sponsor, Peak4 Systems, who have engineered a handheld dynamometer from the bottom up for clinicians by clinicians. They are bringing objective strength testing to your athletes and patients for less than 1% the price of an isoclinic machine and one-third the price of other handheld dynamometers. They have tons of fixation options and can perform over 100 strength tests quickly, accurately and affordably. So test, don't guess. You can view their products and find more information at peak4systems.com and at peak4systems on Instagram. Now on to today's episode with Dr. Tim Gabbett. Welcome back guys to the Measured by Success Physio podcast. This week our guest is joining us from Brisbane, Australia. We are delighted to welcome Dr. Tim Gabbett onto the podcast. Dr. Gabbett is an applied sports scientist with over 25 years experience in the industry. He has been a part of many high performance programs in, in his career, including Olympic Games, elite sporting events, along with military and corporate organizations. And on top of all this, he has published over 250 peer reviewed journal, journal articles. I'm not sure where you find the time, Tim, to do all of that, but it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for inviting me on, guys. I'm really looking forward to the chat. Before we get started properly, Tim, would you like to maybe just uh, introduce yourself just a touch further and maybe give some of the listeners a bit of your background and your career to date and, and maybe a little bit more detail on your research interests and what you've kind of had coming out in the past few years? Yeah, well, look, uh, you know, I, I was uh, always interested in, in sport. Um, so, you know, it's, I played a lot of sport when I was young. Uh, still, still compete now. Um, so it was, it was probably just a logical, a logical thing to do to, to get involved in sport in some way. Um, so I've never really aspired to, to work in an office, um, pretty much day to day. Um, I'm in the field working with athletes, working with coaches, um, and I've never really aspired to be a researcher either, you know. So even though I've I've written a lot of papers, um, that was never really the goal. Um, it it basically just evolved from the work we were doing. We were trying to find answers to the problems we were experiencing in the field, um, and I'd I'd kept some notes on that, and the notes kind of ended up evolving into a paper. Um, so, so the, the papers were all just practical stuff we were doing in the field anyway. Um, and it was the writing for me was, you know, a little bit of cathartic. Some people go camping, some people go fishing for, for a long period of time. That was, that was my way of unwinding was just doing a little bit of writing. Um, and that's, that's, that's pretty much how I, 
I ended up becoming a, you know, a researcher. Um, it, it was never really a, a really big goal of mine to, to become a researcher or to, to write that many papers. But I actually feel like the info in those papers are pretty, are pretty useful if you, can, if you can pick through all the sciencey jargon, um, pick through all, all the stuff that <coughs> has to be in there because of, of, of what journals dictate. Um, there's actually some really practical, use, useful information for, for coaches and, and sports medicine practitioners. Absolutely. We very much agree. And, and that's one of the reasons we wanted to get you on was um, discuss one of your, your new recent papers and uh, editorials that was published in, in BJSM. The title is When Progressing Training Loads, What Are the Considerations for Healthy and Injured Athletes? Um, and as we said to you, myself and Dave think that this is a really important area for physiotherapists to understand and develop our, our ability in. You know, it's crucial to be able to progress loads accordingly and correctly during the rehab process. So we'd love to maybe dig a little bit deeper into this paper. So can you tell us a bit more around this concept and, and maybe specifically its importance around injury and returning from injury to not just return to play, but re mm -hmm. returning to performance as well? Yeah, look, I, I think probably the impetus for, for this paper was, um, you know, I'd seen it a lot where players or athletes of, from all different sports would, would suffer an injury and they'd go through a rehab process. Then they would return to sport and they would break down again. Yeah. And the, 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 common, the common thing that happens is that somewhere in the rehab process, it's broken down. From, from rehab right through to return to play, somewhere it's broken down. Um, and the, the medical team, the sports medicine staff or the physio staff will say to the strength and conditioning staff, you trained him too hard. And then the, the strength and conditioning staff will come back and say, well, no, you didn't train him hard enough. And, and the reality is they're probably both right, um, that it's all relative to where you've been. And where you're going. Uh, when when we get an injury, there's a reduction in in local tissue capacity, and we we have to restore that in in um, in physical therapy. But just improving local tissue capacity isn't going to be enough to return an athlete back to to performance and high level performance. When that local tissue capacity drops due to injury, what may also occur is sport-specific capacity can drop as well. So if, if you've uh, strained a hamstring, your local tissue capacity drops straight away. But because you can't sprint, your sport-specific capacity is also going to drop. So not only do we need to think about local tissue capacity and restoring that, we also need to think about maintaining or restoring sport-specific capacity. And I think this is what one of the areas where, where physical therapists can, can really get, um, can really um, enhance their skills or, or stretch themselves, is think about what are we actually returning this athlete to do? Because when an athlete's in, in rehab and when they've, they've under, undergone an injury, it's, it's clear they can't do high-speed running or sprinting, but we need to be thinking 
what am I sending that athlete back to? When I send them to the strength and conditioning coach, what is it that the strength and conditioning coach wants that athlete to be able to do? And, and by raising the floor, it gives that athlete the best chance of being able to do that when we, when we hand them over to the strength and conditioning coach. So in your mind, do you think that early on when we're addressing local tissue capacity, the sport-specific capacity can, to an extent, coexist? We can maybe look to address that in maybe not a, a very specific way, such as running, but uh, alternatives which may somewhat relate to running and reduce the loss of that sport-specific capacity? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, I think this is the... It's a, it's a natural thing to, to kind of forget about sport-specific capacity because you, you're thinking, oh, well, well this, this player has a, a three-week injury or a six-week injury. We need to, we need to really focus on, on local tissue capacity. We need to really focus on rehabilitating the injury. So it's natural that we, we forget about performance for a little period of time. Yeah. But, but we're in the performance game. Um, and we're kidding ourselves if we think we're not. Anyone who works in in sport, anyone who works anyone who works with uh, an athlete who wants to to get better is in the performance game. Um, so, so I do think they can coexist. Yes, we 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 may not be able to run, we may not be able to sprint, but there's a whole heap of other things that we can do to maintain sport specific capacity. Um, our our number one focus is rehabilitating the injured tissue, um, allowing enough time for biological healing. But, but we also can have that, you know, the second, the second priority or very closely followed behind is, is let's not let sports-specific capacity fall to the basement. Because yeah. if that happens, um, then we've got a lot of work. We've got that catch-up um, and potentially we, we create – Inadvertently, we create a situation where uh, we're we're creating a chronic rehab cycle for that athlete, where they've they've been injured for whatever reason. Sport specific capacity is dropped to the basement. We send them back to to sport, and they're underprepared for what we're about to ask them to do. They get injured again. Now they're back in that rehab loop where they get injured. They don't train hard enough. They get sent back to sport. They get injured again. Uh, and it's just a, a vicious cycle. Yeah, I think that's great. Uh, one, of our, one of the clubs I worked at, our performance department's kind of motto was uh, opportunity, not injury. So whenever anyone was injured, it was trying to keep every other system in check uh, and work around the limitations that that injury had imposed. And it was trying to keep that sports specific nature going as long as possible while we address the local tissue capacity aspect. So I think that was a nice, uh, nice little motto that we had developed as well that is in line with what you're saying there. In your editorial, Tim, there in the BJSM, you talk about the different concepts between tissue capacity and sports specific. And you had a case study of a runner with Achilles tendinopathy. So what I thought might be a good idea is if we dig into that in a little bit more detail. So if we have a distance runner suffering from Achilles tendinopathy, what does the local tissue capacity phase mean? And then what sort of key markers could be set for this phase? Okay, well, when we, when we have a, a runner with, with a Achilles tendinopathy, let's, let's think about some of the things that could happen. 
uh, we could get a decrease in strength. We get a decreased endurance. We get a decrease in power, maybe um, decreased head and stiffness. So these are, these are all things that happen as a result of a reduction in, in local tissue capacity that, that come about through Achilles tendinopathy. Now, um, what, what we need to try and do is, is restore local tissue capacity or, or bring, bring it back to some sort of functional level. And in keeping, keeping in mind that uh, we're, we're focused on function here rather than structure. So we might have some, some benchmarks in place that we feel represent adequate local tissue capacity. So if we're, we're talking about um, uh, endurance, then it might be, it might be we're looking at, at calf endurance. It could be some, some single leg uh, heel raises. And it might be that we're looking for a, a minimum of 25 single leg heel raises as an indication of good calf endurance. Um, if we're looking at um, power, then it could be uh, the, the distance that you can hop in a single leg in a single leg hop, and it could be a, you know a, a triple a triple jump on the single leg, and you're looking at the total distance. And ideally, what you're looking for is um, the, the distance is comparable uh, between the injured and the, and the non-injured limb. Uh, if we're looking at strength, then it could be that we're looking at a, a seated calf raise and, and there is some benchmarks out there where they've looked at um, you, you want to perform uh, one and a half times your body weight for a 6RM. Um, so there's, there's different, there's different uh, criteria that, that we look at and we go, well, this is, this is reasonable, um, a reasonable goal to look for to, to make sure that local tissue capacity is restored. It's, it's a, a standard where if you were healthy, we would be happy with that standard. Now, in order to get to that, then you work your way back from that goal. So if that's your goal to restore local tissue capacity, then you work your way back through that um, with with particularly in the early stages, small, small increments in load. And, and we're talking around two and a half percent increases in load from week to week. Um, so they're quite, quite small early on. Um, and it's very much guided by pain um, and, and what, what that athlete can, um, can tolerate. But, but we're finding exercises to improve to improve strength, we're, we're finding exercises to improve power, we're finding exercises to improve endurance. Um, but we, we do know that one of the key, the key factors in restoring local tissue capacity is, is not rest. It's not just um, icing, icing your injured, injured Achilles, it's, it's progressive loading and pro progressively loading within the within the, um, the constraints of pain, knowing full well too that pain isn't always a great guide um, for, for function. Sometimes there can be a, a mismatch there between, um, between what the athlete is experiencing or, or sensing um, and, and the function that comes with that. I think you hit the nail on the head there, Tim, in terms of managing that uh, local tissue capacity. And I think that's something that 
us as physiotherapists are, are quite good at, you know, we'd consider that our bread and butter in terms of rehabilitating a specific injury and looking quite closely at that. Um, so again, just to, to use the same example that David measured there, uh, say that was a distance runner and we're, we're happy with their local tissue capacity and we're getting them back into, into that phase of running. Would you take a similar approach in terms of those incremental increases in terms of running distances? And then would you also think that we have um, tasks such as plyometrics, which can help bridge this gap between load tolerance for, let's say, tendons and muscles before we go back into that, that distance running as well? Um, you know, what kind of stuff are, are you guys seeing? And also, is there any kind of mistakes that you see in this area of people incorrectly returning their athletes to sport specific stuff too early? Yeah, well, look, I, I think we can talk about um, in the early stages, we can talk about very small increases in load. Um, but when we when we go from and, and the kind of exercises we're talking about are uh, progressive progressive plyometrics progressive stretch shorten cycle activity um, type exercises so we might start with some small um, mini mini hops on two legs yeah. um, and then we progress from from the mini the mini hops from two legs to one leg and then we progress to, to medium to higher to higher intensity um, jumps on two legs and then then try it on one leg. Um, and then, you know, we can progress from that into to small, small drop jumps where we, we drop off a small box or we drop off a medium box before we progress to any sort of running. So essentially what we're trying to do is um, we're testing tolerance of the, of the tendon to that, that yeah. high loading, but, but we're also building some, some of that repeated, um, ground reaction force into into our athlete as well. Um, we know that running you have to you have to um, withstand high impact forces. So the the um, plyometric activity helps prepare the tendon for that activity. So what, what, again, what we're trying to do is bridge the gap between something that that has poor function and can't tolerate a lot of load to a high level of function, something that has to tolerate very high, high demands. We're just trying to bridge the gap there and, and do it in a systematic way. For sure. Tim, um, I'd love to know then, so essentially every practitioner has different facilities and technology and kind of budgets available to them. And we're talking about progressing loads and being able to monitor that. Have you any advice then, say, for example, the, the private practice physio who's working and has very low budget, minimal equipment, what ways of monitoring that, that increase in load do you find is most effective? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is probably the biggest challenge, David. Um, and, and we talked about this in the paper as well, that uh, the, the measures that we have for, for measuring um, either external load we can measure reasonably well so we can we can use gps uh, we can use inertial measurement sensors but not every a lot of labs might have it but not every uh, practitioner has that at their disposal and and equally internal loads 
uh, are a little hard to to measure when we when we take it from the lab out into the real world of the field or the clinic. Um, in that we can measure internal joint loads and we can we can measure um, tendon tendon loads, the internal load on the tendon in the lab. And there's there's tools to do that, but they don't commonly exist in the clinic. They don't commonly exist in the field. And, and that's, that's something where it's a limitation that we have at the moment until we get technology that's um, accessible to the majority of people working in a clinic and affordable for people working in a clinic, then the, we've, we've got to find a way to, to adapt to the, the present environment. And that is that we might have to use an RPE um, where we know that it's, it's quite effective um, for measuring global loads. But when it comes to um, a specific tissue, for example, you know, an injured hamstring, or if we use our, our tendinopathy example, I'm not entirely sure that an RPE actually cuts it. Um, the majority of physical therapists that I've spoken to about this, and I've spoken to a lot about it, um, I asked them, you know, like, is an RPE good enough to capture the internal load at the tissue? And the majority just say, well, no, it, you know, it's not sensitive enough. Um, so, so we need to use our, our clinical reasoning and, and that involves, um, well, look, we, we, we know that in these early stages, the, the tissue can tolerate small increases in load, but we also don't just look at the number of two and a half percent. We're talking to our athlete, we're, we're talking to them about pain. How is that feeling today? But we're, we're also monitoring the response to that. How is it feeling in the, the 48 to 72 hours post loading? Um, is there is there a lot of soreness and has it increased over time rather than decreased? Um, that gives us an indication of of whether the, the athlete's tolerating the load. Um, one one suggestion that that I that has been made to me is perhaps we can use an RPE, but we modify modify the the wording around it. So rather than just say how hard was that session for you. Do, you know, perhaps we need to go. Well, how how hard was that exercise or or that session on your hamstring? How hard was that? You know, so we're starting to. It's all it almost becomes a tissue specific RPE. Um, yeah. The the problem then becomes well, how many numbers do you want to record? But um, I think you can. I think you can still progress well if you use some clinical reasoning. You listen to your athlete and you, you use your understanding of the principles of training, the principles of loading, and you can still load well. We want to, we want to progress load. We want to consider what is a normal response before we go back and load again. Um, so there's, there's some pretty common principles, pretty simple principles that, you, that can guide your training and your rehab programs. This episode is brought to you by Peak Force Systems. Test, don't guess. Visit peakforcesystems.com and at Peak Force Systems on Instagram for more information. I think um, there was a player I worked with in the past. He had a hamstring injury and probably a good example of how maybe RPEs don't quantify everything entirely accurately. 
was we were doing a sprint tra- a sprint test with him uh, returning from hamstring injury and he said he was going at his perceived 100% max speed and when we brought him back inside and checked the GPS data it was actually somewhere between 80 and 85% of his max speed which is, as you can imagine for a hamstring is is crucially important for that sort of final return to play criteria so yeah safe to say we did another <laughs> repeat sprint test with him before signing signing him off so RPEs are great but you're, you're right that they maybe aren't uh, as accurate or as specific as they as we need them to be and for certain for certain things is there I think Greg mentioned it earlier as well is there any common pitfalls or any common mistakes that you see SNC coaches or physios fall into the trap of time and time again when it comes to progressing loads well I think I think the the easiest the easiest way or the, one of the best ways to, to look at it is, is kind of trying to put yourself in the, in the position of those, those two groups. So let's think about your, your sports medicine staff. Um, they, they get pressure from, from whoever, whether it's the coach or the front office staff. And because they, they look after injuries, the pressure comes from, from up above saying, well, we can't have any injuries. And when, when that pressure comes down on the sports medicine staff, if, if they think, well, we can't have any overuse injuries, we can't any, have any load-related injuries or chronic rehab injuries, a lot, a lot of their mindset is, well, if, if load causes injuries, then the easiest way to prevent prevent these overload related injuries or overuse injuries is just to reduce all training loads. Now, when, when that happens, um, you, you, you expose an athlete to low loads, they low loads increases your risk of injury. Once you get injured once it increases your risk of subsequent injuries. So you're in this chronic rehabber cycle where low loads leads to poor fitness and poor performance. Now, the, on the other end of the spectrum, let's put ourselves in the position of the strength and conditioning coach. And the strength and conditioning coach, uh, the pressure that comes down on him, whether it's whether it's spoken about or not, is I need to get that athlete as fit as possible, as fast as possible. I need to get them to the coach so the coach can execute all the skills that they need to do in practice so that they can execute in the game. Now, when you train like that, getting your athletes as fit as possible, as fast as possible, um, and you ramp up loads really quickly, that increases your risk of injury. And once you get injured once, it increases your risk of subsequent injury. You're back in that chronic rehab loop where where you get injured, where you get exposed to low loads, poor fitness and poor performance. So the outcome is the same. So that... If we if we took that pressure away, and we we forgot about the pressure and just focused on one goal, why why is it that we're here? What is the main role of being in this team, or or simply getting getting um, your everyday athlete or everyday person out of the clinic and back to functioning in their normal in their normal life? Everyone. Everyone from elite sport right through to uh, an 80-year-old grandmother is an athlete. Let's think of them as athletes. And when you think of them like that, we're in the performance game. We, we want 
great performances. We either want to win championships or we want to help help our grandmother get up three flights of stairs carrying her groceries. Now, when we think of it like that, how, how would you train if you weren't governed by those pressures, if you weren't governed by those, those fears that are, that are impacting you as a strength and conditioning coach or physical therapist? And it's a really simple answer. You would have to be rock hard fit, whatever that means for your particular task. And to get to that, there's no easy way to get there. You have to build to higher loads. Um, training load is a good thing because training load develops physical qualities, which protects you from injury. That's that's a secondary effect, but it gives you the physical qualities that allow you to, to reach high performances. Um, and, and I think that's, that's the big challenge for strength and conditioning coach and medical staff is understanding what performance looks like. And as a group, embracing that and working towards that as a group. That's, that's the key reason why you're there. One thing just to go back to Tim, where, you know, David gave you a great example of that load management in, in elite sport, when you're going to have access to athletes every day and you're going to have access to technology and various different metrics that you can make use of. For somebody like myself, when we're working in a clinical practice, you know, we, we maybe don't have access to that or, or, or maybe we do have access to it, but only in the clinic. And you're having athletes and patients are going away for three, four weeks at a time before they come back to you. And, you know, the example you, you just gave there of having that, that end goal in mind, I think allows us to create programs, you know, create interventions to help our athletes get there. And a, a, a way that I've been kind of playing around with of, of allowing my athletes and patients to self-progress has kind of taken a bit of inspiration from, I don't know if you've read Matthew McConaughey's book, Green Lights, but he basically talks about, uh, you know, life kind of throws clues at you and hints about whether or not you can proceed, right? So I read this book and thought it was interesting and somebody else has probably done this somewhere else. But, you know, sometimes I'll say to people, you can increase self-progress, whether that is, is volume, intensity, more sets, more repetitions, more load on an exercise, if we use a traffic light system. So if it's if you perform an exercise, there's no pain during it, there's no pain in the, in the one hour window after, and again, that 48 to 72 hours after, you're feeling good, I'm happy for you to progress. That would be you know a green light. Proceed, proceed on, increase your loads. If it's, you know, feels good when you're doing it, but that 48 to 72 hours after, you know, it's not feeling great. I'm not too sure whether or not I can tolerate a little bit more. You know, give yourself an orange light, maybe stick with that same load for the next week or so and, and, and play around with that and, and then see, can you build a bit more tolerance at that level? And then for a red light, you know, it would be probably too high of a pain score when you're performing it. And you definitely know within the next day, the next two days that you're definitely not ready, ready to proceed. So that's something that I've kind of used with, with patients and, and athletes who I maybe aren't going to see that regularly or, or connect with them that regularly <clears throat> that allows them to progress accordingly and not have, you know, long periods of downtime where they've just done the same thing for weeks before they come back into it, into see physio and they're going, yeah, I pro probably could have, could have progressed a little bit more there about two or three weeks ago, but you know, I wasn't too sure what I should do. 
do you think that that's a, an okay way to to go about trying yeah. to do that yeah i do i i think it's um you know essentially we want to make it as simple as possible for people because even though we might have a, a little bit of an interest in numbers because because we went through a particular um, type of training at university it doesn't mean everyone's interested in those numbers and just because we might be able to use excel sheets doesn't mean that everyone um, else can or even wants to so so something like that is a is a i think so so simple but really quite effective um, now the the trick then is um, separating separating what's tissue damage and what's what's causing say pain for other reasons and this is a, a, a completely this is a slightly different discussion now because what we're talking about is for example people in in chronic pain yeah and they 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 may have no biological reason no physical reason for that pain but the pain is real um so so even the smallest of activities tends to drive pain up um now the trick there is trying to find for, for them to understand their body to learn their body and to find out what drives that pain and and if you've got someone with with this pain that has been ongoing for a long period of time um, and they have very strong beliefs around what causes that pain, then it, it, it makes this traffic light system challenging because the, even the slightest bit of soreness could be interpreted as pain. Um, whereas you and I might go, well, look, this is just normal. Um, this is normal DOMS. This is this is what you'd expect from a yeah. from a you know a step up a step up class or you know walking up three walking up and down three flights of stairs whatever you know but I I do think um, having a system where where the athletes we work with the people we work with learn they have to learn their body um, and learn that some soreness is normal um, and and learn the difference between good pain and bad pain. I think that's a, a, a really important part. And the traffic light system goes a long way to, to, to capture the response to, to activity. So I, I think it's a, a really simple and effective approach to progressing life. Spot on. Yeah, I think the, the, the chronic pain definitely is where it, it gets very, very challenging for, for probably us as practitioners and, you know, trying to find that balance between getting them stronger, but not pushing people too hard to the point that they feel like they're, they're breaking down or, or they can't tolerate it too much. But as you yeah. said, that's, that's definitely a, we could, we could go into a rabbit hole on that stuff. Well, look, it's, yeah, we won't, but it's the same. It's the same with, with strength and conditioning as well. You know, like where, where physical therapists are, are working with athletes in pain, and try and understand pain. Um, strength and conditioning coaches are, are helping af athletes understand fatigue. Um, and in in both situations, we're talking about um, athletes who might interpret both situations, pain or fatigue, as being potentially dangerous. Um, yeah. But it's you know about interpreting that that sensation and kind of re rethinking about 
changing our thinking a little bit around what that sensation means. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it is the 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 psychological and the the social aspects, sociological aspects of um, what factors that drive pain, I think are, are really fascinating. You know that you can have pain or fatigue that have nothing to do with tissue damage, um, but the pain and fatigue is real. Like it's it's not as though it's, sure. it's not just in the head. No, I think we probably all experienced it ourselves at times. Um, just, you know, we've kind of said a lot there about that, that multidisciplinary approach, especially in, in high performances, is, is crucial to getting athletes back out. And, and especially in an environment where you've got physiotherapists handing over to strength and conditioning, COSA, uh, strength and conditioning coaches <clears throat> and sometimes vice versa. Um, if you were in a, in a private practice and maybe you didn't have a strength and conditioning coach working with you and you were a physiotherapist, you know, what, what advice would maybe you have for a physiotherapist who was looking to build more knowledge on this or, you know, any kind of resources that they can go for or, or anything that you've seen people using and, and alternatively as well, any strength and conditioning coaches that maybe aren't working with, with physiotherapists, they're potentially working independently where can they find lots of information about maybe restoring some of this local tissue capacity so that, you know, ultimately we can learn from each other and have this kind of best holistic approach to, to managing our athletes and patients. Yeah, well, look, I, I people learn in, in different ways, of course. Um, there's, there's no shortage of, of reading uh, material out there that people can read on, on this topic. Um, and, you know, now there's, there's a, a multitude of, of different courses that, that people can can take so if you're a, a physical therapist so I think probably one of the one of the things that that might be another uh, another string to your bow is just um, learning learning um, more about training uh, periodization planning um, developing different physical qualities so we're talking about systems and and you've mentioned before how um, your bread and butter is 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 really restoring local tissue capacity and you and you do it much better than any strength and conditioning coach can do um, but you know maybe maybe looking at bigger systems you know how do how does this fit within a bigger system um, and I, I think different training courses uh, might be a, a starting point there. Now, for a strength and conditioning coach, um, it's it's almost the the opposite. I think um, systems is is a really uh, one of their one of their strengths. Um, they they're quite good at at seeing where the systems fit in with the demands of the sport. But if you strip that back, then um, one of the ch- one of the challenges I see facing strength and conditioning coaches is they're very good at making training sessions harder um, but it's it's a, a challenge for them to make the session easier so so going back and learning more about local tissue loading learning more about specific tissues whether it be you know how do I how do I load for a, an injured tendon how do I load uh, for an injured bone or and understanding those early stages of rehab I think I think if both groups had an understanding of the challenges that each group face um, and, you know, learnt a little bit more about each other's area, um, I think they'd probably be a little bit more understanding 
um, when it comes to when the when the blowtorch is applied and we're not getting that athlete back quick enough, they'll understand. Well, you know, it's it's not just as easy as what the textbook says. That there's we've got to treat the athlete in front of us, um, and sometimes that athlete doesn't doesn't uh, respond the way the textbook says they should respond. Um, so that'd be that'd be my advice. Is probably just. Mm each group understand a little bit more about the people they're working with. Yeah, Tim, I was going to ask you what would be your main takeaway from today's discussion, but I think that probably wraps it up pretty nicely is essentially we need to spend more time understanding each other's roles. So physios and SNCs need to collaborate more and more and try and understand the, the skill sets we both have and what value we can offer at different stages of a re- rehabilitation process. Yeah, look, I, I think we we probably our default our default mechanism is to go to the the negatives with people and go, well, this this person doesn't do this or he doesn't understand this, rather than well, this person actually brings this this and this, um, and um, when he does that well, um, it's it's probably better than you know ninety five percent of people in the world. Um, so if there is, if there is something holding that practitioner back from being better, then we, we probably should look at it the same way as we, we do with our athletes, that if we have a fast athlete who has no engine, who aerobically is poor, then we, we tend to, to put a bit more work into them aerobically. So we could do the exact same thing with with our practitioners. If they do three things well and there's one thing that they can improve on, then why don't we say to them, "Look, you're doing this really well. You could be even better if we can fix if we can try and you know work on these areas." And you know, it, bec- it becomes a a more well-rounded practitioner and even adds more value to your organisation. Um, but but you know, I think we. The neg- we tend to we tend to focus on the negatives a little bit when we're talking about other people, and of course we consider ourselves as being perfect, um, with with no room for improvement at all. Um, but that'd be the the approach I'd I'd go for is is look at the strengths you've got in your organisation and and really um, you know reward those strengths and 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 try and try and drag the things limiting you down or dragging you down. Try and pull them up a little bit as well. Brilliant. Listen, Tim, we want to thank you for joining us, but just maybe before we let you go, do you want to give the listeners um, some information about maybe where they can find yourself on, on maybe social media or email and maybe let them know if you have any kind of upcoming courses, maybe it's all online at the moment uh, or any kind of new publications to look out for in the next few weeks and months? Yes. Um, if, if people want to uh, visit, visit our website, gabbitperformance.com um they can they can email us through there i'm a bit slow with emails but i will i will respond um you you can find me on different different social media just type in tim gabbard or gabbard tim it'll it'll come up um and if while we can't do um face-to-face workshops at the moment we, we will get back to that eventually so so hang in there um but in the meantime we've we've got um an online course that um, we're really, really proud of it's. Um, it kind of goes across the whole range from physical therapy, athletic trainers, right through to strength and conditioning coaches and coaches. Uh, and keep an eye out on um, on uh, 
the journals as well because we will have something coming pretty soon on um, training the adolescent athlete and the considerations for training the adolescent athlete. So hopefully that one will be of interest to your listeners as well. For sure, for sure. Listen, Tim, thanks a million for joining us and uh, we'll, we'll catch you again soon, all right? Okay, thanks guys. Uh, and have a good sleep, David. <laughs> Cheers, Tim. Thanks a lot. Thanks again to Dr. Gabbett for joining us on today's episode. We have just a few more episodes left in this season of the Measured by Success Physio podcast, so make sure you tune into those coming up in the next couple of weeks. In a few weeks' time, we'll have Dr. Chris Brama on, talking all things running biomechanics, so make sure to follow us on social media at Metrics Physio so that you don't miss the release of that episode. Again, make sure to go and check out peak4systems.com to view their products and also go and view Dr. Tim Gabbett's website, gabbettperformance.com.au and check out everything he has to offer there as well. And we'll see you soon in a couple of weeks for the next episode of the Measured by Success Physio Podcast.